0: one. Welcome to episode 66 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. A little peace and quiet, that's all you're asking for. But just a little. It turns out, even the level of noise we need is in a Goldilocks zone, just like oxygen, blood sugar, pH, and temperature. The longest anyone has been able to spend in the quietest rooms in the world, known as anechoic chambers, where it's so quiet that you can hear your bones creak when you move and your stomach digesting, is about an hour and a half. Some people ask to leave the space within seconds. Isolation from natural light studies in caves, the longest lasting 111 days, have resulted in a deeper understanding of the potential desynchronization of circadian rhythms, including changes in body temperature, performance reaction times, heart rate, and most importantly, our mental relationship with connection and stimuli. Upon exiting her cave isolation, Veronique Legaine said, At last, smells, vegetation, and brouhaha. Before surfacing, I talked to the cave. I listened for the last time to the water dripping off the stalactites. Mixed with the joy of being reunited with my family was a poignant sadness at leaving this cave, which I'd become attached to after all. The key word in wash, rinse, repeat is repeat. Some mundane behaviors are necessary for our daily existence, but their utility for growth is limited. Personal and global discoveries are found at the limits and through experiences with dramatic novelty. Cold exposure, dark retreats, breathwork, psychedelics, meditation, float tanks. The list goes on. At least check out the buffet before you fill up on bread again. Here's my chat with Kevin Capitan. Let's just kick off with where you grew up and tell me a bit about your family and your upbringing.
1: I grew up in a small rural town just outside the city of Barrie called Anton Mills. Back in the late 80s, there was probably about 200 homes in the community, surrounded by county forest and agricultural land. Small town vibes, one stop sign, that's all the town had to offer. Quiet, nice pace for a young man growing up and and it allowed to make strong connections with the people that lived in that community. It was really great and I actually still reside in the, the next town over, which is the town of Minnesing. It's holding a pretty steady place in my heart. So I come from a family of four, my mother, my father, I have an older brother. He's 21 months older. He actually works in the police service as well. So my parents kind of got the curse of two emergency service workers. In my younger years, both my parents were working to make ends meet. Things were, I think, pretty tight for them being a young couple starting out. So they weren't present very much, which kind of led to my brother and I kind of being at our own devices to figure things out. I believe around 1989, my dad took a promotion, which had us move up to around the city of Barrie area my mom ended up being able to stay home, which was great for my brother and I, great for our development. However, that led to my father not being around. And that went on probably until I was completed with my post-secondary education. He was always moving around the province, down to Toronto, up to Sudbury Timmins for his job. And that's kind of a void that's something I'm exploring to this day. Were you in any structured sports through school? Played basketball, I played rugby, Played competitive baseball growing up, up until junior men's. I still play in a league to this day. Um, And then when I got into the fire service, leaned really heavily into firefit. And that's been an unbelievable opportunity for me to travel around the world and really push my own physical limits on a sport where you're, I mean, you're competing against other people, but predominantly competing against yourself. it's been pretty wild, but yeah, active all the time. What were you interested in when you were in high school? What was your main goal? Did you have a career in mind at that point? Honestly, I didn't. The one thing that's always gravitated towards me is I wanted to work it somehow in the national park system. There's been a big pull for me to nature, old growth forests, the mountains, and those things still call to me to this day. So I always figured that it would be something outdoors. I just didn't know what. And then, yeah, that didn't end up coming to fruition the way I thought it would. I'd, I'd explored out west in the late '90s, and it just proved like some of these things weren't going to be as available as I thought they would, which led to my return to Ontario. One day I was sitting down and grabbed a uh, community college calendar and started flipping through it. Honestly, nothing was really catching my eye. Page one, business administration. Page two, computer programming. And as I kept going in and deeper and deeper into this giant catalog, there was a program called Pre-Entry Firefighter. And at the time, that was a part-time study at Georgian College. And it was actually done as a night school program. So it took two years to complete. And I just stared at it. And it was calling to me and I said, okay, you know what, I'm gonna give this a shot. So I registered for it, drove out first night, sat in that classroom and I was hooked. And I think that's kind of the magic of the profession and and even to speak to the instructors, but I was captivated and I just knew at that point that this is exactly what I want to do. So that was really the first exposure, just that community college it was. course booklet. No yeah, I experience don't, with a truck or with crews or with family. Absolutely zero. I don't have that long standing story of lineage in the fire service, or I wasn't the kid that was playing with fire trucks, dreaming of being in the back of the rig. It just kind of happened organically. The crazy thing was, is once I opened up Pandora's box, it just was zero to 60. And I was trying to take in as much of it as I could. And and we pardon the pun, but it was, it was lighting me on fire. Did your brother get into policing before or after? We were really in sync. I think our hiring dates were probably three or four months apart. So we've both been on the job for for almost 20 years now. He's actually working in my region where I work as well. So sometimes we'll see each other on the road, which is kind of cool as well. Was that a draw early on for him or was it the same sort of experience as you? It was, yeah. So, I mean, we look back at grade school yearbooks and it's for my brother, it's always said police officer. Wow, amazing. Yeah, so he kind of, live that dream to fruition
0: so you take the course and what's the process of getting on like applying what was
1: that all like well it was quite a journey for me i think it was about a five year span even in my instructing to this date i share that story because i think now we live in this world of instant gratification where we think God, oh, we can take a program and we're going to get a job and for some people absolutely that does happen but it's not common and i think some of the magic or the beauty is in that journey and taking the, the extra courses and, and even getting no's. Like back then we weren't submitting things online, that technology didn't exist. So all the application processes were either in person or you would mail it, mail in a portfolio. And I think over the five years I had, the good departments would mail you back a letter, like an, I call it no thank you letter. I have another name for it, but I won't say it on, <laughs> on the air, but, but I think I accumulated around 20 of those no thank you letters and I kept them in a shoebox. And I only disposed of them about 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 five or six years ago when I was cleaning some stuff out and I often think it would be really easy to give up after five no's and it would be a lot easier to give up after 10 rejection letters or 15 but the wild thing for me was was as I continued in that process when it rains it pours and all of a sudden one day I start getting calls for interviews and it was one after another after another and so I sat in on I think in in a two week span, I sat in on three different interviews and one, which is the place that I'm employed with to the state and they had offered me the job first. So I interviewed on a Tuesday and I think that Thursday I got a job offer. The following Monday, I received a job offer from another department in which I declined. And I remember them on the phone saying. What do you mean? Are are you, are you sure you don't (laughs) want this? It must've been uh, a
0: weird feeling though, to have to turn down the offer of a job when you're whole
1: goal is to get the call. Yeah. And, and it was, and the crazy thing was, was I had gone to these three interviews and the typical experiences is, is that you're selling yourself. You get in there and it's like your elevator pitch. You've got this short period of time to just get as much out as you can and really tell them why you're a good fit. And the place that I ended up taking the position with, it was kind of the opposite. Where they sold me on, we're a very young department. We're building in our facilities, we're buying new equipment. There's going to be opportunities down the road for progression in service. We've just got approved for a $15 million training facility. One day you may be able to be an instructor there. And I left thinking, I feel like they're trying to sell the job to me. (laughs) And I couldn't wrap my head around that. And to go full circle, fast forward 18 years later, I've progressed in service to the rank of captain. And for the last decade, I've been teaching at their facility as a fire service instructor. I love the fact that everything that they put out on day one, ground zero in the interview actually came to fruition. That's an incredible feeling. And how was your recruit class experience? Interesting enough, I was a single hire. So we were a very small department back then. So I had a lot of one-on-one time with the training officers. (laughs) All Uh, one-on-one time. Yeah. So how long was the class? I was two and a half months before I got to the floor. That's a lot of time to be able to rep things out and dive in deep. It was, we cover a few different disciplines at my place of employment. We had to kind of specialize in a few of those areas before they could turn me loose, we offer a symptom relief program. And obviously there's a a component of specialized firefighting around aircraft. So those were extra pieces that I didn't have familiarization with but it was good. The crew that I got placed on was a generally young crew. And there was another junior firefighter on that shift that had got hired on just before me. So that was really decent to have that person to work alongside and grow alongside and a supportive crew of guys that actually wanted to get out and train and get their hands dirty. And they would get lit up to come out to the truck and, and pull equipment off. It was really decent. I do miss the fact that perhaps there wasn't the pomp and circumstance, but thankfully I've gotten to live through that Through my recruits that i've taught since then and that's pretty fulfilling process as well and for where you are now the style of firefighting may not have been what you pictured was firefighting from the beginning no there's been tons of changes i mean the evolution in total like i did 10 years on a rural volunteer department which is also a completely different style of firefighting the progress or change in strategies tactics equipment I mean, we just purchased a few new rigs that are operating with the the new SAM system, and, and it is completely digitalized pump panels. You even have nozzles that speak to your pump panel to make sure that they're, it's regulating pressure. And these are things that I wouldn't have been able to imagine in my wildest dreams. The technologies and shifts are beautiful. I do think we lose a little bit of our craft when it comes to... How the systems work, how the pumps or the mechanics or that aptitude is around pumping or, or even just the equipment that we use or building construction because we're, we're really simplifying everything, but that's part of growth. We have to embrace it. I think. So
0: when did the 10 years of volunteer rural start, Were you doing
1: that before you got on full time? I was uh, into the mix and then I stayed on seven years after I got on full time. Okay. So how was the process of joining up with them and the initial experience? It was really good. There's something kind of beautiful about being able to serve your own community in which you reside in and the familiarization of the area and all the people that live in the community. It was a pretty good sized department. Actually, it was in the township of Springwater. So we had five stations at the time and a reasonably good call volume. So the, the station that I was out of ran out onto the 400 highway and denser community areas. So the call volume was decent. And There was a lot of career guys that were that were working on the job on the volunteer as well so it worked for a really great mentoring system when you get in a room you kind of size up okay who's who's the workers who can i learn from and uh, and if you gravitate to those people i mean obviously there's some magic that can happen and i was fortunate enough to have a really good group of guys in there and it kind of took me under their wing and really ingrained a lot of really good habits and practices with me. And I think those have carried through to where I am today. Was there onboarding like in the training that followed over the years? That was actually one of the, the nicest pieces for development in my career to date, they had a really decent budget, not a lot of interest from their firefighters uh, being volunteered to take the programs or courses. So I spent a lot of time up at the fire college in Gravenhurst, doing officer development, and I actually got my uh, company officer diploma through my volunteer department. And it was kind of like, if you put in will approve you to go. So it was a real good benefit. Were you doing officer level work with them prior to getting on as a rookie? I had, yeah, I dipped my feet into it. Kind of just knowing that that would be the natural progression and where I wanted to go. So after I got on full time, there was my acting captain on my career department. We would book all our summer leave and spend it up at the fire college. Just kind of hounding away at the diploma. It was really good. So
0: how do you see it now? The structure of the way you ran calls and business was done on the volunteer side of things versus how it's done when you join the full-time.
1: It's interesting. I'll be cautious in how I share this because I think when you're volunteering, you have a different, maybe agenda. You love being a part of it. You love the community, you love helping, and it's kind of like all hands on deck. So it was actually a little bit of a culture shock for me when I shifted into the career world or full-time world where. For some, perhaps it's just a job or for some it's like, Hey, I've paid my dues and, and I'm done where I don't think in a decade, I ran calls in the volunteers where there wasn't 13 people washing a truck afterwards. So was it a disenchantment disheartening for you? It was definitely a bit of a surprise, but it is interesting because hard work is contagious. I've seen from strong leadership, my PC that I have now currently is, is unbelievable. He's a real big believer in creating strong teams and. Once you create a new normal, whether it's everyone's washing the truck, everyone's jumping up after dinner to clean the kitchen, that just becomes common practice. So I'm very fortunate that that has been the tone that's been set on my crew. But yeah, I think, I think across the board, yeah, like it's, it was a little bit surprising.
0: What kind of jobs did you have before the fire service? Did you already have a pretty strong work ethic experience
1: with other industries and maybe people not being engaged in work? That's one thing that I think my brother and I definitely did take on from my father was, was the strong work ethic. Uh, my dad worked very hard throughout his career and, and progressed in his field. And when I was younger, we worked at the local ski resorts. That was the thing to do. But then I started branching out into farm work because I lived in a farming community and then into some bricklaying and some roofing, odd job stuff. And then I ended up getting in with Honda of Canada manufacturing in Halston. And that was a really great experience for me. I actually loved working there which is funny because that's not a common theme that I hear, but I was a great employer. They treated us well and it allowed me the means to pursue everything that I wanted. So I actually took a fairly significant pay decrease when I transitioned into the fire service initially. But when you're starting to pursue things like two years of community college, I ended up attending the recruit program at Texas A&M, which back then was their four-month program. And that was in 2002. And after September 11th, obviously there was a massive shift in our economy and it was a very expensive uh, venture for me to to entertain and then to come back with a little bit of debt and now all of a sudden you're being told oh you got to take these weekend courses and get into your swift water rescue your ice water rescue your confined space and this and that for a lot of people that wouldn't have been attainable but honda obviously was a good employer and it allowed me the means to to be able to continue to aggressively pursue the career Yeah, I've heard nothing but good things over the years about Honda. I mean, I know I'm at a
0: distance, so I'm sure there's some inside things like there is with everywhere, but I've heard nothing but good things. Yeah, I know I enjoyed it.
1: Yeah. So who are the other guides and mentors in your life other than your parents? Mostly it was the peer group. A lot of my friends that I hung out with, which is that typical bunch of confused kids trying to figure out life. And I'm thankful for that because that's that trial and error thing, right? You're jumping in maybe with two feet and this worked, this didn't work. It wasn't until I got into the fire service where I really started to see what good real coaching and mentoring look like, where people would take you under their wing and and really be invested in you. And that's continued to this day. And that's something now that I'm trying to offer at a a very high level as well. Did
0: you find anything on the job was affecting you? Like, when did you start to realize... That your mental health or mental well being was a thing that needed to be paid attention to, especially in emergency
1: service. And was there anything along the way that started that thought process that the job was giving you? It's tricky. So in two thousand in December of twenty twenty one, I was diagnosed with a, a stress injury. I won't say operational stress injury because there's multiple factors. I mean. We can dig back into childhood pieces that I'm trying to explore to this day. But in 2011, January 4th, 2011, my partner, uh, the the mother of my children, was in a catastrophic motor vehicle accident. And she was operating as a a nurse. And she had just taken a job as a faculty member at Georgian College teaching in the nursing program. First day of work, she's driving home, it's a snowstorm, and she's in a head-on collision. And her vehicle was displaced and she was T-boned airlifted down to uh, St. Mike's Hospital, Neurotrauma, ICU, non-survivable injuries in some miraculous way. She did end up surviving, but it was a very long journey to her recovery, six months hospitalization, multiple surgeries, and we had just celebrated new daughters. So our daughters, I think were one at the time. Twins? Twin girls. Yeah, absolutely. That's why all my hair is turning gray. (laughs) So two young people with the world at their fingertips, I'd been on the job, I think for about five years, it didn't matter. I think we develop a sense of resiliency on the job in most cases where we can run our our normal calls and get through the shifts fairly successfully, whether it's through peer support or through working out or other applications we put into place. But as a 30 year old man, nothing had prepared me for that. My partner at the time got, I mean, in, in the hospital, obviously incredible support. And even after she was discharged, repatriated home, speech language, physiotherapy, everything she needed to embark into a successful recovery was put into place. But in that time I became a full-time father, a full-time caregiver, a full-time firefighter. It was just the weight of everything. It was just far too consuming. I think that's at the point where I started realizing that there were shifts in my own behavior and a lot of that was present in like OCD tendencies. Looking back, I think it was just that element of like controlling my own environments. Because so much else felt out of control. Exactly. So if I can control that small space, I would feel safe. Unfortunately, all these services, whether they were or weren't available to me, I don't know, but I wasn't in a space to entertain them just because life felt too consuming for you, for me. So fast forward to 10 years, (laughs) 10 years later, I had kind of fallen into what I'll say, the lifestyle of a workaholic. My average work week was sitting around 72 to 96 hours, and I was operating at that capacity for just over two years. So seriously sleep deprived. I did love what I do. I still do. I mean, I love, I love obviously working in the fire service and instructing is a huge part of my life, but the piece that was lacking was balance. And when you're in it, you don't see those things. You're kind of operating in survival mode. And it's just like, how do I get to the next day? Can I just get through this shift?
0: What was different with her and her awareness and abilities before and after, and then your relationship
1: beforehand, obviously very able-bodied. We were very active together, co-parenting, very intelligent had completed her master's degree. And then coming out with an acquired brain injury had a massive shift in our life with that comes a lot of other challenges initial diagnosis was that she was going to be hemiplegic on her right side she did regain some movement but even to this day still has some balance issues and such and things as simple as a trip and fall could be catastrophic for her she has what's called a chiari malformation so her brain is actually displaced inside inside her skull and as a result of that she gets hydrocephalus so she's shunt dependent they implanted a shunt in the ventricles of her brain uh, that drain the fluid out and virtually keep her alive and those have an 80 percent failure rate So, uh, but they can be revised. They can put new ones in, but just those pieces alone shifted everything. It changed everything in the relationship, which actually led to us making the decision that cohabitating wasn't going to be successful for for her and I, or, or for the, the development of our children. So we ended up kind of separating, but our relationship is very strong, which is beautiful.
0: And was there a lot of family support around both
1: of you through all that? There was, yeah. We're both blessed to have really incredible families in that capacity. My father had retired at that point, uh, so that, and they lived right down the road. We'd built a home in that community. So um, lots of hands on deck, which was great. But I think as you go down that rabbit hole of taking control, even if the hands are there, you don't always reach out for them. You don't always ask for that help. You know, You just say, oh, I got this. I can do this. And that was kind of what was consuming me at that time. Was the job adding on top of what you were already dealing with at home? Absolutely. And that's that thing where if we take that analogy of your life or your body is like a, like a copper glass and everyone's is different. You know, some people have a pint glass, someone might have a shot glass, someone might have that big 50 gallon drum, you know, everyone's different and each one of these circumstances is a drop or a pour into that. And eventually it starts getting fuller and fuller and eventually after that, it's going to overflow. And i think it was a culmination or a perfect storm of all these life events compounding even just the job alone is a heavy load to carry and it doesn't have to be a massive massive event it could be something as light as a feather that kind of pushes you over the top and i hit that point december of 2021 where i was just massively burnt out nothing was operating smoothly anymore i was dealing with irritability the times that I was in my home and present to be of, to be around, I wasn't present, I couldn't be. I was just so shut down and, and internalized that I think I lost a lot of time. I ended up going to my GP and she ran every test under the sun. Uh, we did blood work, we did urinalysis, we, we did chest x-rays. And she calls me back in and she's like, listen, your blood markers are all over the place. The ketones in your urine are off. Your chest x-ray, you have the lungs of a smoker. And I hadn't considered the amount of live fire training that I'd done over the decade, and even wearing PPE, that exposure still being so prominent. And she looks me right in the eye and she's like, you are literally working yourself to death. You have to stop. And that hit me like a brick wall. Which is hard though, because you can't necessarily stop because you have a family and this is what you do. Well, exactly. And, and that's where we kind of loop back to that term balance. And what does that look like? And that was something I hadn't figured out. I took two months off to just kind of process it sit with it and really put a a plan in place on how I'm going to work through all of these things. Thank goodness for my daughters, because that was a real guiding light for me to realize the importance of kind of turning my ship around. I kind of reflect back sometimes and I think like, where could I be or where would I be if I didn't have that? Because it's really easy to pick up bad habits or self-destructive behavior, especially when you're at a low. Thank goodness that didn't happen. And I had a very good friend of mine that came to the house I think two or three days after I went off work, she knocks on the door, comes on in. She was a Toronto firefighter who went off work with PTSD. It was deemed that she wasn't going to go back to work. She sought out a new profession and she got her, uh, her degree in psychology and she's working now as a somatic practitioner. And she pitched something to me that I hadn't heard of, entertained, would have considered in a past life. And she's like, listen, I do somatic therapy sessions. I'm utilizing MDMA and ketamine. And I'd really like you to think about coming in and sitting in on one of these sessions. My initial response was no. <laughs> I was like, No, nah, that's not for me. Was the initial approach to getting better healing up from your
0: doctor? Was it initially a very Western medical pharmaceutical based time
1: off plus meds is that Absolutely. How it was Absolutely. So and I and I had shared initially like that's not something I was willing to entertain. Oh, okay, because um, so you didn't go down that road. I did not go down that road. Because yeah. for um, some it's helpful. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there is definitely a place for that. And I didn't have the answers at that time.
0: You took time off and you were kind of pushing back on how to
1: approach it other than taking time off. What was the healing journey ahead like? Well, that's it, right? So it was all very foreign to me, but like anything else in my life, I jumped in with two feet. So I started digging into books and I started watching documentaries and I wanted to take in as much as I could. So the first thing that came out, well, one of the biggest pieces that came out of my appointment with my physician was that my nervous system had been so out of regulation, if you will, that I'd been really, like my sympathetic nervous system was on overdrive. And that's probably been the case for a decade, which is not okay.
0: And up until recently the terms nervous system dysregulation and regulation at least in in the common vernacular wasn't there it's more common now but it wasn't really necessarily
1: understood by the lay person and completely foreign to me as well and so when we started looking at that the way they broke it down was like your body is operating in fight or flight all the time survival mode It, it is constantly searching out where's the threat and how do i keep myself safe so i started digging into that and i read a book back that january january of 2022 and it was called how to do the work One of the things I loved about it was it was a clinical psychologist who practiced CBT who came out and said, I realize that that's not the one piece to the puzzle. And there's a multitude of things you can explore and there's power in breath work and there's power in cold therapies and meditation and all these things. So I was like, oh my God, I got to explore these things. So I'm sitting at home and I'm starting in the shower with cold showers and I'm like, oh my God, this is so hard. Like, I don't, I don't, my body didn't want, it was still in fight or flight. It didn't want to feel that cold water. That's another threat. That's a stressor. That's the, that's
0: the key point that everybody struggles with is that you're at your weakest, you feel you're at your weakest, right? You're so broken down. You're so tired. You're so fried. What you need to get out of that is do work
1: Yeah, at your weakest point. Yeah. And that's. It's a big ask. That's the hardest thing, right? Is to, to, to kind of take that course and approach and go, this is going to be even harder. Yeah. By the way, you need to step into a, ma- a really cold shower. Yeah. It's like, that's the last thing I want. I want a
0: really hot shower and I want to climb under the duvet in the, in the bed and not come out, exactly. that's what I feel like. Right.
1: Exactly. And it started to get easier and then it led to, oh, well, you know, when you're doing this, you should be exploring breath. So I started researching that and then I got into this Wim Hof breathing, these hypoxic breath holds, and then the cold shower started getting easier. And then it started leading to meditation and it started leading to journaling and all of these pieces or daily practices started falling into place. And as I was leaning into them all, I started becoming very curious. And I think that was for me, like the TSN turning point or ESPN turning point, if you will, where I was like, okay. Now, when these feelings come on or these sensations in my body, cause it's not always logical. It's not always in your brain. Sometimes it's a, a gut feeling or a heaviness in your chest, or you feel flush and sweaty and you don't know why. Where now I'm kind of like, oh, okay, I feel this coming on. What is this? And where is that coming from? And what is it about this that doesn't allow me to feel safe? Or what is it about this that bothers me? And I think that was kind of the, the piece where I realized that like, I can address all of these things and I'm still going to be okay.
0: You realize that the things happening to you are caused by something. It's not you at your core emanating this stuff. It's stuff happening and it's causing these feelings. So you take this observer position.
1: In our DNA, we're all of good moral fiber. We're all of we all come from a place of love. It's just a series of of events that kind of bump us off course. And it's trying to find that alignment back to where we're supposed to be. So out of that, yeah, it's been a spiral of events and it's been cool because after the initial part of seeking some things out, everything has kind of unfolded organically where you get into the cold showers and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I should lean into breath work. And breath work ended up leading me to these two practitioners that do another style called transformational breath. And it's more trauma healing related. It's a very, It's a very deep practice. If you were to look at the two like Doing Wim Hof breathing is like going to the gym. It's a nice thing you could do every day. It makes you feel good where transformational breathing would be like going to the keg. It's gonna be unbelievable, but you're not doing it every day. Like you're gonna go in there a couple times a year, three, four times a year, and it's gonna have massive results or a great experience. And it started unfolding. And then I ended up watching a documentary from a guy by the name of Aubrey Marcus. It was in relation to um, ayahuasca. I knew nothing about it. And to be quite honest with you, those things weren't on my radar utilizing psychedelics or anything like that. It was, it was fairly foreign to me. Did you have the same pushback as you did with your friend that was offering the MDMA and ketamine experience? I'd actually leaned into that. So Debbie and I had chatted a fair bit over those months. She ended up convincing me to give it a go. In
0: line with you starting to do a few things on your own and you built up a bit of understanding and yeah, absolutely. I guess bravery to yeah. venture down that road.
1: And it is because it's not easy work. It's really hard to look inside. And I think that's why a lot of people put up walls and don't do it. So I ended up sitting in medicine work with Debbie. That would have been probably late February or early March of 2022.
0: Ahead of the ayahuasca.
1: Ahead of the ayahuasca. Okay. And we did uh it was a 10 hour session, which was a very long and taxing day. It's interesting because I didn't have any experience utilizing these medicines and having already been attending traditional CBT for the last few months prior to that, I was thinking in my head, okay, like this is what it will look like. I'll get in and I'll, I'll start talking and sharing and reliving these life experiences. And I'll just probably cry, which I was long overdue for and release some of that energy and I'll feel incredible and I'll go home. Right. I'll be fixed. And none of that played out that way. I don't think I spoke two words in the 10 hours and it was all a physical response, which now makes sense. Like understanding those somatic pieces and a lot of purging. I did feel a lot lighter when I left. Purging physically. Yeah, purging physically. Yeah. And
0: I, it's interesting because I think when people think or hear about the purging physically, the vomiting, say with ayahuasca or say with any psychedelic or drug, they think of it as just a unwanted side effect. It's like part of the crucible that it just comes along with what you're going to get out of it. But the more and
1: more I learn about it, it is actually a benefit. It's part of the beneficial healing process. Yeah, it's stored energy, right? And And some of those energies... We push down or suppress and they're held and they're trapped and they're trapped in our gut area our gut is another brain actually while i was in peru this past june i had the privilege of meeting a few different tribes they don't use it for the visions or the hallucinogenic properties they use it for the purge the psychedelic part is the side effect yeah that's the side effect and that's (laughs) when we look at the people that are exploring that that's what they're seeking it makes sense that we're very especially
0: now right the things we watch something Right, a movie or whatever, a reel we watch makes us experience something. We makes us think. We read something. We're taking in these visual and auditory stimuli all the time. So it makes sense that well, I'm going to go and do that, and that's that type of stimuli is going to what is going to be what heals me.
1: And there is a part of that for sure, but I would argue they're they're equally valuable. So I ended up going through the, the uh, session with uh, with Debbie and and then ayahuasca and. Interesting enough, another documentary I watched by Aubrey Marcus was in regards to dark retreats. And I was sitting with both of them and I'd researched them and I was sitting there and the ayahuasca seemed to be what was calling me. So I said, okay, this is the avenue I'm going to pursue and I'm going to go. So in June of 2022, I went down to, uh, I flew down into Peru, into Lima, connected into Iquitos. Uh, I got on a small boat. I traveled up the Amazon river to a shamanic sanctuary where I did two weeks of medicine work with some Shipibo shaman. It's interesting because I don't believe like the, the, the lessons that I was taught working down there is, is it's, you could do ayahuasca once and probably get something from it. But if you are looking at the journey of the warrior, they're done in succession. Part of it is doing the medicine work itself. And part of it is returning to the altar ceremony after ceremony and setting your intentions and consuming the brew that has been fermenting over the course of the two weeks and getting stronger and stronger and tasting more and more terrible each time you get (laughs) up there and it's not easy. Like I watched a lot of people who flew from all over the world tap out after two ceremonies and I would go back to my room and I would journal and I'd say, oh my God, like imagine flying across the world and then quitting on yourself. I refuse to do that.
0: But again, coming back to that being in a very hard place. And then expecting to do something that's harder than you've ever done before. I found that with my first ketamine session was, I didn't think I could, after that session, I was like, if this is what it's like, I don't know if I could do another one. And only through talking to other people was it like, not every session is going to be like that. And it's part of the healing process. And I'm glad I continued on. That resonates
1: with me. I understand why people would tap. They are all different. And that's what I realized as I went through that succession, where I think my first ceremony going in, everyone's kind of nervous and excited and you're in the Maloka, and it's the middle of the night and it's just candlelight and the shaman are singing icaros and you and you set your intentions and you drink the brew and everyone lays down my first medicine journey was very psychedelic and it was probably the most beautiful aesthetically but i got the least out of it it was the technicolor dream coat and if that would have been my only exposure to ayahuasca, we said, oh, it's great. And it's super easy work and no big deal. And I would have left happy, but there would have been no change. Like a Disney world ride. Exactly. And it wasn't until I got into the further sessions where some, I didn't have any visions at all, but I had radical purging and chills and almost was febrile. Which would be seen as a bad trip. Which may be perceived as, but those were the ones where I got the most benefit because no one's there to help you. So you learn to comfort yourself. You learn to console yourself, to be there, to sit in it. And I think that's the hard part. And then you leave and the next morning you wake up and you feel incredible. You feel like you could run a marathon. And I'm questioning, how, how is that possible? I felt so terrible last night and here, here I am this morning and I feel, I feel like a million dollars. And then it was interesting because the last night that I went into the ceremony, I did have a vision. And it was so simple and it still gets me today. Like, I, I don't think I've ever been able to kind of share the experience without getting a bit emotional, but sometimes you get into these dream states and you're active player number one, you're in there and it's you living the situation. But this was more of a dream where I was observing. And there was a, a property fence board on board about six feet tall. And it was kind of running along the side of a, of a, of a yard. I could hear what sounded like a large dog on the other side of the fence. And it was pacing. And it was panting and it was tired. It didn't sound like it was in pain, but it just like, it, it was just exhausted and it had enough. And I, and I kept trying to look through the, through the little holes in the fence and I couldn't see it, but I, I could hear it back and forth, back and forth. Then a board comes out almost like a plank on a, on a, on a pirate ship and there's a puppy on it and it's a St. Bernard and I would have always said, you know, I thought my spirit animal would be a husky, but uh, clearly it's a St. Bernard and it's this puppy. And it's happy and its tongue is hanging out and it's smiling and it looks so peaceful, so content. And I'm looking at this and it was for me, the message I took was, this is you, this is your life and you get to choose. You can be on this side of the fence and you can be killing yourself every day, pacing back and forth, exhausted, no quality of life, missing everything on autopilot. Or you can choose to change. You can choose to be happy. You can choose to make these changes. And it sounds so simple, but it hit me the hardest. By removing a barrier and maybe not even the entire barrier, but maybe if you could knock one board out. Yeah, absolutely. So that really opened up a different perspective for me with healing and self exploration. Like I said, that level of curiosity now that's present has been the greatest gift to say like, this is my life. I am not ashamed of it. We didn't choose for these things to happen per se. But we do get to choose how we respond or how we show up or how we move forward. And I think that is kind of that stall or mute point for a lot of people is they get there and then they don't know what to do or where to look or what to explore, or they're so concerned about what it will look like or what people might think. And that in itself, that like listening to that ego voice is so limiting. Now I just, I lean past it and I go, what's on the other side. And it's been really great. So has the healing journey so far been, you tried the
0: cold therapy yourself, you were sort of working around breath work a little bit, sort of dabbling, then
1: into the, was it MDMA or ketamine, which one did you? I did both. Did both, okay, I did but both. separate times? Yeah, uh, yeah, I did, so it was in the same session, but staggered fairly lengthy apart.
0: Okay, yeah, over a 10-hour period, that makes sense, yeah, because the ketamine can be a long, well, at least an hour and a half or so, yeah. Was there linear progression and then plateaus, were there, did you feel at any point there was like three steps forward, two steps back?
1: I still feel that. I feel that all the time. And you know, that's an interesting piece because we're always going to have those ebbs and flows of life or the yin and the yang, and there's going to be good days, bad days, things that elevate us and things that knock us down. And I think that's to be expected. But I think the one difference that I've been really identifying as of late is you might take those two steps forward and three steps back. But when you're three steps back, you're able to identify it. And you're able to say okay wow i'm here and acknowledging that and looking at it and reflecting on it because you're a different person than when you saw it the first time so is it really three steps back true and 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 that's something that's kind of been bouncing around with me this last little while where i'm like okay yeah but i'm dealing with it differently i'm looking at it differently so really maybe it's only a step back
0: yeah i had this misunderstanding i think after doing a lot of work that i would never go back to that place whatever that place was again and then i found myself back there again And my initial thought was very much judgmental of like, oh, well, it was all for naught. But then very quickly I realized I wasn't seeing it and feeling it exactly the same way as I was before because I was different. Not until I had the same experience again as a different person did I realize that the work took. Whereas if the challenge never appeared again, I wouldn't know if it worked or not.
1: And I think there's value in that. I mean, we have a lot of living left to go. I plan to make it to 100, so I can't anticipate that to be smooth sailing. But it's like adding tools to your toolbox, right? That you actually pull out and use. Uh, that and you actually for. pull out and use. And, and, it's, <laughs> and it's funny because. You can we, have a
0: full toolbox, but you never open it up. It doesn't really do anything. And that's a really good analogy for firefighting too.
1: Well, I was going to say that and we would preach that on the job to say, hey, we got to have plan A, plan B, plan C, and we got to know how to operate in all those capacities. And then all of a sudden we put it into our own lives. And I remember teaching this at the academy and talking about balance and talking about wellness. Well, I think there was a part of me that wanted to believe that I was living that or walking that walk, but now. I bring it a little bit different or maybe there's a different spin on it or a different a level of grace to say hey yeah you know what it doesn't have to be go 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 and it doesn't have to you don't have to bear all the load and i think we're, it's hard for us because i mean predominantly in our profession it's very similar personality type and we are very hypercritical of ourselves that's beneficial in some applications for sure but in some parts it can be very harmful
0: yeah so that's a good segue to like integration is huge and you've sort of been touching on it we haven't used the, the term integration yet but I'm interested to know how you were starting to integrate this into your personal life and with your family, how that was manifesting, but then also how you integrated it into the job, how you perceived the job, how you interacted with other people and then instructing, cause you touched on it just there. So were you instructing, how did you get into instructing and were you instructing before you started this personal healing journey? Like just chronologically yes. sort of bring me up to speed.
1: I've been instructing for the last decade. It's, it's been with me through all aspects of my journey through the traumatic events and then obviously as we're, as we're slowly starting to work our way through them. So talk
0: to me about starting instructing and then how that experience and how you approach it, how you perceive it, how you interact with people has changed.
1: I was very fortunate. My place of employment built an unbelievable facility and I'd been on the job for a while and it had been on the radar uh, that opportunities would present themselves. And it was interesting because not a lot of people were wanting to engage in that in that avenue of our of our profession so i was like yeah like this is calling to me and i remembered my experience at uh, texas a m and when we go back 23 years ago that was a very very well perceived educational facility for firefighting if not maybe one of the best probably the best and because uh, there wasn't many around i don't even remember the stats but like 150 acres of burn prop they work with USAR our teams fema texas task force one all these things And the instructors that I had been exposed to back then, like second to none, they looked the part, they talked the part, and then they could reinforce it with knowledge and wisdom and skill set. And I wanted to be able to share that as well. I mean, it's a skilled trade. Firefighting is a skilled trade and we're craftspeople. And I think there's a beautiful gift about passing that torch on and doing it right. That can get diluted. Everyone's intentions or interests are different. Some people might do it for, for the monetary remuneration. And some people do it for the love of the job. I think for myself, one of the most fulfilling pieces was once I started getting into the facility and working with the students, you'd get these random text messages. Hey, I have an interview coming up, what can you tell me? I'm like, okay, well maybe think about this or this or answer kind of based on your past experiences or pull something in from your volunteer hall or from the job you're working as a licensed electrician or these challenges. 30 days goes by and you get another message. You wouldn't believe this, I got a job offer. And for me anyways, those were huge wins. And I felt like I was reliving those moments when I got the call. And so that level of excitement was there because I was genuinely happy for that person or that, that win for them. Yeah. And you feel like you're having a,
0: an effect and value to people. and Absolutely. It also gives you hope that people can in this world of chaos and suffering, sometimes that good things still happen to people when people can get better and improve and grow and change
1: absolutely and i think also carrying along those values that were passed on to me that maybe those are going to have longevity in our service there's been more changes in the last decade than i've seen than i could have ever imagined and whether that comes from the influx in fire academies to maybe perhaps what our recruits are are coming out looking like and 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 then equipment and our, our daily operations and service as well to be able to hold on and i don't mean there's no room for change absolutely there is But to hold on to those pieces that make us great, like the love of the job, drills, skills drills, man, 10,000 reps, making sure you understand how the equipment works, making sure you check it in the morning. Are those common practice anymore? Even wellness, holding yourself accountable to a physical standard to do the job. And I think going in and representing a brand that I love, hopefully that becomes a little bit contagious and sets a tone.
0: So you said you were speaking about health and wellness to a degree at some point. What were you teaching when you got into striking? What were you teaching? And then when did that aspect come into it? How are you delivering it? And then as you've progressed and learned about yourself through this experience, how has that shifted how you speak
1: about it? I've always worked within the 1001 cells. So it's always been basic level firefighting and then live fire training. I think in the past, it had always been this massive emphasis on physical conditioning, being physically prepared to do the job, talking about workout programs, talking about challenges we face and high-rise opportunities where you're climbing up a certain amount of stairs and carrying all the equipment. And the more we can take up, the less we have to go back down for or send another crew up. Seeing the applicants coming in and really being shell-shocked by that, I was just like, this is what we have to focus on. I think more so now, it's also really trying to prepare them and not scare them, but prepare them for how hard the job really is. And that's not just the physical component, but the things that come with it. The sleep deprivation, how does that affect us cognitively? How is our nervous system regulated or compensated after a call? Are there things we can do in a debrief? Are there things we can do collectively to bring ourselves back down? Because it is a massive adrenaline strike. We're also looking at things that most people don't get to experience in their professions that typically aren't normal. The NFL game where there was a cardiac arrest on the field, the internet went bananas over this. And, you know, oh, everyone's shell-shocked from having to witness that take place. And it was obviously those things are hard, but imagine doing that nine times in a month or 10 times in a month and then just going back and eating your dinner and going home to your family the next day. And I think that's one of the pieces that I share now more is like explore what's available to you. And also educate your families. If you're residing with a partner who doesn't have exposure or a level of understanding to even maybe something as simple as death, if you've never gone through that process or that grieving, it's not relatable. And that can put a lot of distance in a relationship if you can't connect over that or what your individual needs are after experiencing those things in a 24 hour shift.
0: And not until we've talked about it right now did I think about it in this way, but very often and i've said it exactly the way you've said it right that this isn't normal it's not normal what's normal is what the majority of the people that we interact with in, in our life experience chaos and suffering and death it is normal and it happens it's happening right now it happens all the time so it is in essence normal just a lot of society is and the culture is protected from it. a lot of people are just protected from it. Absolutely. There's no exposure. Right. So maybe that's, what's not normal. Yeah. <laughs> is that fair? Yeah. That I,
1: and I don't know, bad
0: things is. are happening all the time. People are dying all the time. They're suffering. There's graphic things occurring even worse than what we've seen. That's the world. Maybe being fully isolated from it and in, in a, your little bubble. That's maybe what's not normal.
1: Well, and I think it's easy to become distracted from dealing with those things as they do present themselves. That's a tricky part too, and I think that was kind of what I was leaning into where if I could stay working, if I could be distracted all the time, I didn't have to deal with those hard pieces that were coming up, whether it was from traumatic calls or whether whether it was from life experiences that were still weighing on me. That's one of the reasons that I elected to explore going into the darkness. I'd reached out to um, a company in Germany, actually, And I'd emailed the lady and she'd replied back and I sat with that and and the ayahuasca journey and I elected to take the route of going to Peru instead. Well, I get back at the end of June. I'm starting to clean out my emails one morning and there was emails from the lady and I'm like, I don't need these anymore. Delete, delete, delete. I leave shift that morning, hop in my car, fire on a podcast. Lo and behold, the topic of the day, dark retreat. And I thought to myself. You're not going to let me delete this. Are you like, this is, this is going to keep coming up. So I found a company in Oregon that does it called sky caves retreats. And I emailed the, the owner, Scott, and he wrote back and he's like, I'm booked solid for two years. Like there's, there's no way I can get you in. So I figured it wasn't meant to be a few weeks later, he slides into my emails and he's like, Hey, I got a cancellation in September. And everything in me was trying to find a reason to say, no, oh, I can't take more time off work. Oh, I don't have the money to do this. I'm doing pretty good. Like maybe I don't need this. And then I was like, "That's the old Kev." I'm like, "You gotta go. You gotta do this." So I booked it. What I loved about the concept behind the Dark Retreat is, is, and this is what we were talking about: this hyperstimulation in our normal world. We're so full of distractions—work, TV, phones, Instagram, TikTok, the news—all these different things that present themselves. It is our world, but it's not the world. Exactly, and what it allows us to do is not cope or deal with anything. And so even, even here in this studio, you and I could be having a conversation and it could get heavy. And I, maybe I start feeling my emotions coming up and I could deviate my gaze or look at the computer screen and start pushing it back down, but that's not present in the dark and you have to sit with all
0: of it. I think I have an understanding of how it goes, but maybe just explain for people listening what what is the process? What is that like? How many days is it? What What do you mean by being in the dark? Are you
1: in a room? Are you wearing a eye shade the entire time? The facility that I went to is called Sky Caves and it's up in the Cascade Siskiyou Mountain Range in uh, Oregon, right close to the border of California. The owner has built a series of, I mean, caves if you will, but they're, they're subterranean apartments and they're made from uh, ICF construction. So they're completely soundproof. There's zero light pollution. And you have a bed, there's a toilet running water and a bathtub, and that's it. So you go and you get your first night to familiarize yourself with the space. Here I am thinking, oh, I'm a firefighter and I search rooms and this should be really easy and it's a very, very small space. I mean, maybe 12 by 12 size of a bedroom. So you get your bearings and then the next day they say, okay, you know, you're going to go in and it's going to be pitch black. And when I initially emailed Scott, we'd kind of discussed duration. He said, you know, the average person that comes in will do anywhere between 24 hours and and three days. I had already had it set in my head that I wanted to do seven. And he was kind of, and he was kind of like, Hey, like, listen, this might not be a good idea, you know, do the 5k before the marathon. Exactly. So I wrote him back and I said, okay, I get it, but like, it's, it's quite a travel for me to get out there and I want to get the most out of this. And we ended up agreeing on five. He ended up giving me five and a half, which was great. He was supposed to come and get me out in the morning and he left me until the afternoon. So yeah, it is, it's exactly like it sounds. You go into this space, zero light pollution, zero sound pollution, except for your own breath. You go into the darkness. So is
0: food delivered to you three times a day? How does that work? No,
1: you're on a vegan diet while you're in there or a dieta, they deliver it once a day at 7 PM and it goes through a double door. So they open a door on one side, slide it in. He just checks on you quickly. You know, Hey, are you doing okay? Yep. Okay. See you tomorrow. And they give you two meal portions. You can't see it you're smelling it. Oh man, this is, this is strawberries. You know, I'm going to eat this or this, this feels like mixed nuts or it's, this is a sandwich, whatever. Cause that has been a thing. There's been
0: restaurants that have done that, like eating in the dark Yeah, absolutely. As, an, as a different visceral experience.
1: Yeah, that's right. The piece of it is, is what goes on between our two ears is, is the voice that we get through. We, we deal with all day long. When have you actually sat with that? When have you actually sat with what you're feeling? And we don't, Um, Like I said, the world's full of distractions. So if you can eliminate all of those, what's going to come of it? Did you have a sense
0: of peace and relief though, from being completely isolated and not, you had no responsibilities, you had nothing to do. So there must've been some initial like relief and peace with, before the thoughts probably overtake you. It's like, this is a
1: break. (laughs) Interesting enough. Yes. Uh, Yes and no. I think because we're doers and we're so used to going at this high pace, we're operating at these high levels. When I got in there and he says, okay, today's your day. Here's a tea light candle. And when you blow it out, that's it. And you're in the dark until you come out. So I blow the candle out and you're kind of like, oh, well, what am I going to do? So you start doing push-ups, and I was doing yoga and I'd taken a, I brought a a really beautiful uh, indigenous flute with me and I'm trying to play that in the dark because you're so used to staying busy. You don't know how to sit still. And I don't know if that went on for Four hours, 24 hours, you have no concept of time, but eventually that gets old. You can only do so many push ups. And yeah, and then you sit. It's when I was finally getting to that point where I was tired of keeping busy that I noticed things were starting to surface. And all the feelings in the feeling wheel were coming to fruition, whether it was anger or extreme sadness, joy, gratitude, like these things were coming in waves in no particular order either, which is, which makes it even crazier. Did you feel like you were losing your sanity at any point? That was something that came up and I'll, and I'll touch on that. So yeah, so you're purging emotions at this point, which I believe is unbelievably healthy and that went on for again, an unknown duration seemed like a very long time and then that's when the rest and the stillness truly kicked in. It was like, you've let all this out and now you can just be. And the longer that that piece went on while I was just sitting in nothingness is when you really start to maybe hit a different level of consciousness because you can't see and you've lost your form. I mean, you can't see your hands in front of your face. It's that, it's that dark and the wall could be three inches from your face or it could be three miles away. You don't know.
0: I've had that experience in the sensory deprivation tank in the float
1: tank. And that's what was really wild to me was as I got into those later days my spatial orientation in the room was actually getting worse. Did you feel like you were in a smaller space or in a larger space? Larger, like I was actually getting turned around and I'm like, where am I? Like the bed should be right here. And, and in my head, I was chuckling being like, you do this for a living. Like this should be easy. (laughs) And and it wasn't. And it opened up a real interesting piece for me because I got to a point where I think my mind had actually been quieted to the point where I was feeling space between thoughts. I mean, they could have been microseconds, they could have been minutes, you don't know, but I could feel it, where the brain wasn't just looking for the next thing. And that was a really incredible experience to go through. And I hired a practitioner to come in <laughs> to, to, before I came out, so this would have been on day five, just to make sure that I had all my faculties before I returned out into the real world. She came in and sat with me, and she put a couple of interesting questions out there where she said, the sensations you're describing this nothingness this no sense of self or being just this level of just awareness and she's like have you ever considered that that's that's what it's like to die if you subscribe to that like say the spirituality this reincarnation this this energy form and i hadn't thought of that and it was pretty it was pretty impactful to think like wow like there's still this this void or this space and you're still there.
0: In many ways, you were not of this world during that time. Exactly. You had stepped away.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it was actually a very powerful experience for me.
0: And how did it affect your sleep? Because it's interesting, you and I initially talked before we started recording about Huberman's, the latest research about the importance of getting some sunlight into your eyes early in the morning and then dialing it down at the end of the day for sleep circadian rhythms and i believe if i'm not incorrect i think the circadian rhythm research started by doing a dark cave retreat for a number of days and then they
1: realized how important light and dark is to our circadian rhythm you're right so initially i did nap off and on for the times i have no idea but as i got further and further into the practice i didn't sleep at all i could have been awake for three days straight And that was a really interesting piece. And you weren't feeling. I wasn't feeling exhausted. No, I felt great. Actually the day that I came out, I ended up driving down to uh, Crescent, California to see the ocean, I actually felt so uh, rested and revitalized. So it was really, really fascinating from that standpoint to see that like we can submerge ourselves into these environments that are foreign and our bodies do want to adapt. We are very resilient that way and we can learn how to adjust to whether it's not having the light in the environment or the sound. Like I I, th- I remember laying in the bed at one point and it was so quiet in there, I could hear the heart beating in my own chest. And that was a pretty wild feeling.
0: And what about going the five days without bathing or showering? Like, how are you, how is the personal hygiene?
1: No, you do, you do. You have a, you, there's a bathtub in there and there's running water. Okay. You're just learning to navigate all that stuff without being able to see. So I would argue that that's very comparable to doing like a float tank. You're in the bath in this, in this space and it's completely dark. There's definitely an element of relearning how to do those things because there's trip hazards, things are slippery. Like There was lots of times I bumped into stuff that wasn't a factor. The facility is actually remarkable. Like The ventilation, the the, the, the the bathtub was humongous. Like It was incredible.
0: It must be interesting for people that are of varying degrees or fully seeing impaired, but I understand they're still in the world and there's a lot of stimuli going on. They're not in a sensory deprivation space. So there is some difference there, but did you have any clarity on or more appreciation for that, for people that I've never been able to see or the people that are inconsistently in the dark? Did you have any thoughts on that about how their world must be some insight and empathy?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, obviously it's completely different and you can see the challenges that that would pose, even in the simplest of tasks. I would go in to brush my teeth and you can't see the sink. You can't see the toothpaste or the toothbrush and you're trying to line it up and put it on and it, it ends up turning into you grab the tube you squirt the toothpaste in your mouth because that's controlled and then you start brushing so it, yeah you, you you're learning a different way of doing things that we wouldn't normally operate like in in, in our in our world where we, where we maybe have the blessing or the benefit of, of sight and even to touch on that too like even though i was in the darkness in those short periods where i would have a nap or or even even daydream like you can have pretty wild, vivid daydreams if you, if you allow yourself to explore that. But if you've never had the benefit of sight, what does that look like? I don't know the answer to that, but very
0: curious. And then someone that hasn't had the benefit of sight couldn't probably explain it to you either. It's one of those things that's completely unknown. So how bright and loud was the world when you came out and how did you slowly integrate yourself back into the real world? And did you even want to come back?
1: <laughs> Interesting question. Our bodies are incredible because they want to figure things out five and a half day mark scott brought me outside and i could feel the heat it was it was it was beautiful weather you're seated in a chair and you are wearing a, a mindfold mask at that time so completely blacked out because he was bringing you out into the into the world so you sit there and we were chatting a little bit here and there and then he says you know like are you, are you ready to take the blindfold off and i remember pulling it i mean only a few centimeters from my eyes and the level of sensitivity and burning was so overwhelming that i didn't want to take it off I was actually concerned I might not be able to. And then, you know, you sit with it and you're like, okay, I got to do this. So you take it off and you're squinting and like, you can't open your eyes fully, but even the color spectrum was so out of alignment. And I had the most incredible view. I'm looking at this mountain range and it's, it's It's a pretty nice space to come out of. It's picture perfect. Right. And the mountains were presenting purple and orange because my, my eyes hadn't. The, the, the prisms hadn't figured out how to receive those colors as of yet. So it took, it took a few seconds for me to like come back to normal or equalize what that was supposed to look like. And it was heavy. It was interesting because I'd come out and, and I didn't know at the time, I'm sure it was in the waiver that I signed and didn't, didn't read typical, but he had talked like in there of, of an exit interview. So all of a sudden I'm sitting there and there's a few cameras on me and it was really overwhelming and he started kind of touching on the experience and I hadn't really considered like how that was going to feel. So as I'm sharing, obviously it was like massively emotional for me. And it was a beautiful experience.
0: Honestly, that's how I became aware of you, right? Like I watched
1: that reel. They ended
0: up posting it. And I've seen a number of people do those. They that's a little blur above how they feel when they come out, but it was very impactful.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. It was funny because that actually brought a, a significant amount of anxiety into me because I wasn't aware that it was gonna get posted. Before I left, I said, Hey, like if you're gonna share anything, like let's keep it pretty tasteful. And I started driving down to um Crescent City, California. And that whole drive is through the mountain range. So there's no cell reception. So I'm coming up through a clearing and all of a sudden I'd see like, oh, Instagram notification, Instagram notification, but I couldn't open it. So finally I pull into the parking lot of a hotel and. my I'm, phone I'm, had blown up. My phone had blown up. And I look at this video and I'm like, oh, oh. boy, you know, the guy, like it, it's a very vulnerable position to be in. But a beautiful position to be in. Yeah. Looking back, I can see that and I would not change any of it. Given the protective nature of self, would I have chosen that for me? No, but great things have come of that, like internally, of course, but then also from opportunities. But yeah, I had to sit with that for a while to be like, wow, like. What does this mean? Yeah, and you're bearing your truth, you're bearing your soul. Countless people can just see that side of you that maybe they didn't even know existed. As much as you were doing
0: this personal work and seeking out opportunities to do more and find out how the deep the rabbit hole goes. How were you with vulnerability before and was that the first time where you felt vulnerable and then you had a positive experience of it and then you've been more comfortable with it?
1: In a past life, non-existent, I kind of always had the very, very uh, firm or strong exterior. Not to say that I didn't feel things on the inside, but the ability to process or even, even acknowledge some of it wasn't there. And it was interesting because at the end of 2021, I went through the dissolution of my marriage. I lost my best friend. And so I started leaning into kind of that self-exploration piece. And I think it was around March that I made a post and it was kind of just sharing like where I was in life and how much I'd loved the things that had come to me, the fire service instructing, but almost the need to take a break. And I kind of looked at it as a way of saying like, Hey, I'm going to need a little bit of space and time to do me. I love all you guys, but I just, I just got to set a boundary here and and allow for a bit of room. I knew the outreach would be good because it was going through my social media and it would resonate with students and people that maybe would be reaching out on a regular basis. Can you, can you help me with this? Can you look at that? Oddly enough, it had the opposite effect where the phone blew up and people were like, oh my God, like I had no idea and I'm here for you. And what do you need? And this and that And I need some space. And it's like, yeah, no space, (laughs) but, but it was good because I'd actually felt really isolated and alone. You don't know what you don't know. And a lot of people might see this facade or like, Hey, like, you know, there's Capitan and he's doing great things and he's this great instructor or this, this, he loves firefighting or he's a great dad, they don't get to see the side that's struggling or the things that, you know, kind of keep you up at night. And I think by putting it out there, it made it very relatable. So I was grateful for that. And then out of that came some really great connections and, and, and even reconnections with friendships that I'd had that allowed me to kind of help navigate this a little bit easier with a bit better flow. So it it is funny, even though those may have been my initial intentions, everything always kind of goes the way it's supposed to, I believe.
0: So now do you feel you are gaining a strong sense of, and this is something I've talked about before, like to stay on as much as I can, when I can, that marriage of the job being difficult and requiring what it requires. And that hardness that's required, but also now the softness of the vulnerability and integrating those two together and you can be both at the same time. So maybe talk to me about that. And then again, touch back on how you spoke to recruits or training people or when you promoted became a captain, how do you interact with people now and in the best way you can sort of draw people towards what's possible.
1: Well, so that, that's a great question through promotion was, it was an interesting thing. I, I had, I had no interest in becoming a captain. I don't know if I'd mentioned that to you. I always found acting to be the sweet spot. One day you're in the right seat cause your captain took the day off and then you're on a handline or your driver operator. And I loved being the driver operator. Like that's a massive responsibility. And I still feel a disconnect from that to this day. Like I miss parts of the job and I acted for seven years. I think there were three promotional processes that had taken place in that timeline. And I didn't put in for any of them. And then there was a fourth one that was on the horizon. I end up getting yanked upstairs into the deputy's office and he kind of says, oh, well, you know, I've noticed that you haven't put in for the last three promotions. Like, may, may I ask why? And I was, I was excited to tell him, I'm like, oh, acting's the sweet spot. And I get to do this and do that. And he's kind of looking at me very stoic, eh, like no expression. And he says, it doesn't really work like that. And I said, oh, well, like, I don't know, I think it does. And he was kind of, he was kind of giving me that like piss or get off the pot speech. I took it to heart. And I kind of thought, thought to myself, okay, like, listen, like you've been able to make a good impact as a firefighter on the trucks and you're gaining a lot of traction at the academy with instructing. And here's another spot where if you believe in building strong teams, now you're in a spot where you can help really shift that change or be part of that. And I was fortunate because I, I put in for a promotional process and there was four of us that got made up and, and I was one of them, which was great. And they placed me on a crew with a, with a platoon chief who... He's all about the guys we put in a solid day's work every day. And, and then, you know, maybe in the evenings you get to reap some of the benefits of that between that and my, my other two co-captains. Like I've literally seen magic getting created and with the ebbs and flows of my own experiences, I think approaching things with a little bit more empathy and love, like if I've leaned heavily into some spiritual practices and a lot of spiritual readings for sure. And I think it always comes back to seek to understand. Not everyone shows up the best every day. That's not possible. We can't operate at that capacity. Taking the time to understand like, Hey man, I know that I've had hard days and haven't wanted to come and do this. And you kind of pull your socks up and put your boots on and try to put on that brave face. And I'm like, so what's this person maybe going through that's affecting that as well. So it's looking at it through a different lens. And I think that's the best thing we can do. You're right. I think you call it the connected warrior, Mm -hmm. and I love that. And I think that's, that's how it is. And I think that's a big disconnect in where we're going in the fire service these days because we're 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 being a little too much connected and not enough warrior perhaps. But on the fire ground or when when the tones go off, we have to we have to operate a certain way. And that's at a very high level and that's with a a certain level of intensity and fortitude. But then the balance of that or the the dichotomy of that sitting on that that pendulum is that we have to We also have to have those soft skills and we have to have that self-awareness or sense of self to work through those pieces and understand that this light switch can't always be in one direction. And that might mean exploring your sense of self, your sense of purpose, avenues to cope or process or deal with things, not only from work, but just life in general. Like, I mean, I know people now, like we're, we're dealing with inflation and prices of things are changing and there's stresses every direction we look at. There's massive stresses.
0: Did you have any worries as you went down this rabbit hole that you were going to, cause I think this would be common with people that they would be afraid that they're going to lose the edge, right? If I relax and I rest, if I allow this to come up, I'll never be able to get back to that stoic, hard, strong warrior place that I know is necessary to do the work. So they stay in it because it's necessary for the bulk of their life, but it doesn't apply to every aspect. So what I feel like people don't understand is they feel like they're gonna lose this edge, but if they do the work that they need across the board on themselves, that edge becomes a ledge, and then that ledge becomes a platform, and then it becomes the way you operate in life. I've heard the term very often, you don't have to worry about training to get ready if you're always ready. I feel like this is what people don't understand is that you can integrate these things together and stand on this solid foundation. You're always ready for whatever comes whether whether it's the job asking you something or you needing something, like you're operating from the same platform. Does that make any sense?
1: It does. I actually really love that. Yeah, I would argue that it kind of leaning into the like the two different pieces, it'll heighten it across the board. It, be, it doesn't become a spectrum anymore. It becomes just the way. Yeah, it just becomes your normal, right? Yes. And and I think that's true. There's a lot of truth behind that. I mean, we all have these embedded mindset pieces that have been there for how many ever years. This muscle memory, the know-how, the Especially if you grew up playing sports or anything like that, where there's a high intensity, like I'm, I'm in, I'm in a gym all the time and it is a competitive atmosphere and you flip that switch and you come out hard and transitioning that to the fire ground is, is still muscle memory for me. I don't, I don't think I'll ever lose that. If anything, I want it to keep, keep elevating and getting better, but it is a dance for sure. But that's a key point there. I think not only did you not lose
0: the edge, but you, you have no desire to, it's not like you softened up and you're like, okay, I don't even want to go down that hard road anymore. You still desired it and you still
1: enjoyed it. Well, I think that's that gift of loving what you do and wanting to excel at it. The fire service for me has been the biggest, one of the biggest blessings of my life. You can look at the day you got married, the day you had your kids, you know, these types of things. It lights such a spark inside me. We have such a beautiful opportunity to help people for the A type personality or the problem solver. I mean, we're constantly be being thrown all these situations where we have to critical thinking is so paramount. Okay, we've got a vehicle and it's on its side and it's it's into a fence and how are we getting them out and where are we stabilizing and all these different pieces that come up. It keeps it so exciting and so fresh and it and it, it forces you to have to maintain that skill set because it's always different.
0: It's very present moment too. Yeah, if people realize it or not. Like you are enjoying it maybe because maybe for the only aspect of your life you're in the present moment because you have no choice. Yeah,
1: absolutely, right? <laughs> There's no distraction there for sure. Yeah, you're right in it. Leaning into my own self-exploration has heightened every aspect of my life. My daughters are turning 15 this year. My one daughter, Avery, had had mentioned to me a couple weeks ago that having me home so regularly, attending all of her volleyball, and those are things that I would have tried to do before, even when I was working so much, but the quality of it was very different. That the level of presence was absolutely different. Fostering those connections in such short periods of time that we have has been one of the biggest things that I've leaned into. Like so much that I've tattooed it on my arm, this memento mori, like remember you must die, is knowing that like, I need to be here now and tomorrow's not a guarantee. So it's kiss your kids in the morning, send out all those reminders that you love everybody and do your best in that moment. Be purposeful, intentional and and present. That's been a big shift for me.
0: How much have you shared with them about this journey? and how understanding, and they've been able to wrap their head around while you're going away
1: on these yeah. So, um, adventures. Yeah. So they're, they're very yeah. supportive of it, which is incredible. And I think the, the benefit of that is age, right? They're at that coming of age for themselves where they're, they're women now, and I don't put a filter on any of it. So they're very aware of all the things that I've, that I've explored and what that's looked like. And I've also shared the benefits of it, whether it's been the science or, or how it's helped me. It's funny because the, the next one that's coming is. I'd had this retirement dream with my with my wife at the time. We wanted to get a camper van and we were going to travel around North America. I remember going into therapy being like, oh my God, my whole life has changed. The next 40 years, all these goals, these dreams, this co-creation is now shifted. And what do I do? Traditional CBT, they're not going to give you the answer, but they'll say like, wow, well, you know, how do you feel about that? Well, I feel kind of sad. You know, this isn't the best. Well, what's stopping you from still doing it? Well, what happens if I, I start dating someone or I'm exploring relationship and that person's not interested? Well, are you doing that right now? Well, no, I'm not. Well, hmm. and then you're like, can I do this now? That's what's come of it. So I approached my daughters who are very well traveled. I mean, they've, they've been everywhere, which is, which is great. And I said, Hey, you know, I've got this adventure on the radar here and I want to rent a camper van and I, I, I think I'm going to hit the road for two months. And do you guys want to come with me? They hummed and hawed a little bit and they're like a camper. Like, ah, oh, and like in I mean, teenagers, right? The, I think the level of luxury is a little bit different, you know, they want. In fancy-
0: proximity to you nonstop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they want
1: fancy hotel rooms and swimming pools and all this stuff. But I said, like, I feel like this is really important for me to do this. And how do you feel about it? And they lit up and they were like, you have to do this. So I did, I I've, I've put a deposit down on a camper van and April 29th, I'm hitting the open road for two months. Yeah. I'm just going to explore all down through the Southern us, Arizona, Colorado, Texas, Utah, California, up the coast, back into Canada and connecting with a bunch of really great people along the way. And I think those things are important four or five years ago, I would have never entertained taking the time off work. I would have never entertained investing in myself you give, you give, you give. What I realized was, you, you know, you kind of forecast yourself for these long-sighted goals. I'll be happy when. I'll be happy when I build this type of home. I'll be happy when I have this much money in the bank. I'll be happy. We need to be happy right now. And that doesn't mean like recklessly. That doesn't mean like go out and, you know, blow all your money and spend car, buy fancy cars or anything. But it does mean bringing a level of awareness to you and your own needs. And what, what do I need to thrive right now? they've been beautifully supportive and like anything else, I mean, they get to follow along in real life and not just a random post I might make here or there. So, so it's a little more exciting for them.
0: So you touched on before about how you use the analogy of some people might have a shot glass, some people might have a pint glass, some people might have a 45 gallon drum. Do you feel after everything you've done now that you're now operating consistently? Like I guess what we're talking about is your capacity for resilience. That's what that, that analogy is for. So are you a 45 gallon drum all the time now? Do you, or are you just more aware of when you're a shot glass and when you're a 45 gallon drum?
1: Yeah, there's definitely a a heightened level of awareness, right? I mean, I don't think we can always operate at these maximum capacities. I don't, I don't think that's a realistic expectation, but again, like I touched on having those tools in your toolbox to explore when these things do become overwhelming or when you do feel like a sense of heaviness are going to get you back quicker. Well, the day you're the shot glass and you're overflowing. Hey, maybe it is time to book that counseling session, or hey, maybe it is time to dive into a little bit of breath work and and see if I can regulate my nervous system independently because there's lots of things we can do on our own.
0: So you have more control. You feel like you have more awareness when you your capacity is limited and now you have more awareness and tools to turn the shot glass into a larger vessel.
1: Absolutely. And 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 the comfort to do so. And I think that's the biggest barrier or challenge for most people is is people know when they're hurting, people know when they're suffering. But I think there's a a real fear, and I believe it is fear, to ask for help or to even self-acknowledge it because we want to believe we tell ourselves these stories that we are hyper resilient and we, we are these strong people I um, mean, this shouldn't happen to me or this couldn't happen to me. So the comfort to lean into that and say, hey man, I'm I am human. Some of these things are very hard and it's probably okay. Actually, forget that. It is okay that I feel this way. How can I bounce back from this in a way that's productive? And so, I mean escapism is unfortunately in our professions, there's there's a lot of bad habits that people can put into play to cope, but there's also a lot of really good ones. And I think that's kind of where I am in my own life right now, where I'm sure there's some people that, <laughs> that don't want to hear it, but I, I, I do want to share this stuff openly because I think when you can express a level of vulnerability or share these tools, it normalizes it for other people. Cold exposure. Like I'm not shying away from going and jumping in the lake a couple of times a week. And the amount of people I've seen that have jumped in and started to join me or, or now even going out on their own has grown exponentially. I have yet to go to a breathwork session where I haven't taken a guy from work. And these are guys that maybe wouldn't have explored that before. I say, Oh yeah, I'm going to head down to the city and meet me in Liberty village. We're going to go do this, do this breathwork. And then they always leave me like, wow, like why wasn't I doing this before?
0: Yeah. I feel very strongly that, cause there are a lot of things that are the latest thing. Right There's a food. Oh, this is the superfood. Very often people will say stuff like that, like, well, next time will be a study and it'll debunk all that. What the research is showing, and it just, I mean, from both of our personal experiences, I don't think this is the latest thing. There's visceral, actual feelings of change from the behavior.
1: It's a tricky piece, especially in today's world with social media and all of these coaches, whether they're multifaceted life coaches, healing coaches, yada, yada, yada. Eventually we're going to run out of people to coach. We've just coached everybody and taught them to be coaches and et cetera. And it just keeps exploding. If you go back to the older texts, reading like the Bhagavad Gita or the Kabbalion, even the Bible, and I'm not religious per se, but they all come from these basic fibers, these basic principles. And I think those have lasted the test of time, whether it's a dark retreat or sacred medicine work or treating your body appropriately, whether it's through exercise or nutrition. Those will never grow old. Those will never be fads. And I think they've lasted so long and been the test of time because they're, that's the real answer. Even coming from a place of love, like those are the fundamentals of lead, leading or living a happy life. So yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the best pieces of advice I got was be your own guru. The information is all out there. And what works for For you might not work for me. So you have to figure that out. Or it will, but in different amounts. Yeah, absolutely. Just finding whatever recipe works for you.
0: Yeah, maybe it's no coincidence uh, that the word cool has lasted generations. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) For some reason, that's the one word that every generation is cool with. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. So how are you now using this awareness at work, say post-call? Like how do you frame what you're doing as a crew?
1: How do you dialogue are people receptive to it? Like I said, I'm very fortunate that I'm on a, on a, a really strong crew and very open-minded and, and very wellness-oriented. And my place of employment is the same. I mean, we have a wellness room in the fire hall that has a sauna. Um, it has some more comfortable furniture in there, if you will. And and there's time allotted to get in and explore that. And our gyms are are pretty good. But the open dialogue is one of the key pieces, right? Getting back after those harder calls and sitting around the table and and, and doing a good debrief, a good PIR, Even if you do it on the tailboard, just kind of feel everybody out. Like, how are we doing today? Not even just to dissect the call, but how everyone's feeling afterwards. Hey, what do you need? Do you need to go back and hit hit the gym? Do you need to go back and even grab 20 minutes in the wrapper or sorry, in in bed? Like there's a place for all of it. I think those things were so neglected in, in times past that it was just like, get back to the station, back to work, even if it was sitting at the table and then you're going right back out for the next one. So having that time to decompress is, is huge. That's something that we've been applying as a collective, not just for myself. Uh, I kind of feel like when you lean into these things, there's that level of connectivity where you realize that most people are doing the same thing. They might not be sharing it. They might not be as vocal or, or they might not be as far along or as explorative, but all our needs, all our basic human needs are the same. If I'm having a hard go, chances are someone else is as well. Yeah. That can be a, a failing of some people sometimes
0: too, where they've quote unquote done some of the work and they feel like they're farther down the path, even though they might not have started until they were in their thirties or forties or fifties. And now suddenly they think everyone else should just wake up and get it all done at the same time. Meanwhile, you hadn't for 50 years and just because you discovered it today doesn't mean everyone can catch up.
1: Yeah, I don't think that's a fair expectation. And the truth is, is things come to you when they're supposed to. And and I, and I am a big believer of that. It's so funny because we can, we can sit and look back and say, oh man, if I would have done this earlier, if I would change this, or if I could go back in time or jump in the DeLorean, there's my back to the future reference, things would maybe be different, but Alan Watts, I don't know if you're familiar with Alan Watts, but I love him. I could listen to him for hours and he does this spiel, uh, the dream of life. And in that he starts talking about like, even if you could go back or even if you could make these changes and live this incredible life, regardless of what it looked like money, sports cars, all this in time that would get old. And after doing that for 70 nights or 170 nights or how, whatever the duration is, eventually you'd want the mystery of life. You'd want the hard parts of life and in the infinite realm of possibilities, eventually you'd pick the life you're living right now. Hmm. And I think that. Or maybe a slightly (laughs) harder version. (laughs) Yeah. Just a little, just dial it. That's
0: like Seinfeld and Tylenol, right? Like find out what is going to kill me and just back it off a little bit. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, (laughs) And, and, and that's that thing of like. This is unfolding for me the way it's supposed to. And in the time that it's supposed to, and the pieces that have gotten me here, wouldn't have gotten me here if I didn't experience them. Or in the way that I've caused it to. Yeah, absolutely. There has to be some ownership as well. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing where, even if we're reflecting on where we are in our life, where we've been in our life or where we want to move forward, we're the catalyst of that. Even when it comes to limiting beliefs or heck man, even self-sabotage, we hold ourselves back. If you cut that cord, imagine you're, you know, you're in a slingshot and it's pulled back so tight and you're just holding yourself there and you're not allowing yourself to have that forward momentum, let go and see what happens. And you might end up accelerating faster and further than you ever expected. In a shorter period of time. Yeah. And, but that's that fear and that we love being comfortable. We love so much being comfortable. I, I look at it even with my daughters when there's an element of bubble wrapping them, which I, I try not to do, but we do it to ourselves as well. We read it all the time, but like growth is going to happen when we're uncomfortable. And so now I'm not saying go out and seek it all the time, but realize when it's there and feel it and ask yourself those questions.
0: You mentioned that thought of like, well, if I could go back and start all over again, even just the career like how much better you would be at it or you would have so much more enjoyment out of it. Knowing that that's not true, do you have moments now, like are you with this awareness and knowing the job is very much a core component of you and you love it still. It can reach a point of like you could be excited about retiring and seeing what you can do with your life with what you know now beyond that. And or do you have the feeling of you see the end of your career coming and you wish it was slightly longer so you could do it better from here to then?
1: Those are tough questions, right? I mean, I think we always want to leave things a little bit better than we found it. Isn't that, isn't that the goal? My dream is to push to 60. I'll stay on the trucks as long as I can or in, in some sort of role within our organization until I'm 60. I plan to live to be 100, so if I, if I pull the chute too early, there's going to be a lot of idle time there. I don't have a hard time filling my days up on my days off. I, I've, I've got a lot of great hobbies and things I enjoy to do, but I would miss it. I know that. Like I can feel that. We have a very special profession, and I love it with all my heart. We're very fortunate to have it. It's not easily let go of. And it's interesting for you to hear
0: you say that, because sometimes when you hear people say that, you feel that they don't identify with anything else other than the job. That's usually the common refrain. So for someone, having got to know you now more, you do have this realization that it's not the only part of you, yet you still have that deep feeling that
1: you would miss it because you identify with it. But not fully. Well, that's the thing. And I think for quite some time I did. I I think that was my identity piece. And I've actually journaled about that in great length. Oh, well, this is Captain Capitan or he's the fire service instructor. And it was because it was consuming 80% of my life that I didn't have space for the variances. And, And now where it's kind of more balanced out, it's one of those things where I look at work as it's one of the, one of the other things in my life that do bring me joy, no different than my children or going to the gym or all these other activities. I think sometimes we think the grass is greener. Hey, I'm going to pull a shoot of 55 and I'm going to be so happy. And the grass is greener where you water it. I've had a blessing, uh, especially in my instructing uh, career where I've worked with some outstanding people, you know, Berkey, Chris Burke, Chris Ogg the self-proclaimed legend, Randy Fleming, even some, some really young guys that are dipping their feet in that some of them I've instructed, Anthony de Benedictus, uh, he's doing great things with, with the academy and and pushing PT as, as a standard of like, listen, this is required and I'm going to expose you to it and show you what it should look like. And a couple of guys on my crew, like Jeremy Fuller, and I think it allows, or you can see when you're around these people, the level of love and passion that they have for the job. I I would love to see more of that, but it's a reminder of like, Hey, we're in this for a reason and it is valuable and we do have an impact. And there is a time and a place where you, where you hang up the boots, but I think that's starting to evolve and look a bit different. And it is still, even if it's only occupying maybe 30% of my life now, it's still a very relevant and meaningful 30%. Are you in general, very optimistic then about
0: the fire service and the career and where it's going?
1: Oh, oh, loaded question. Uh, yeah, yeah. overall, yes. I think you and I've had some discussions in the past in regards to some of the shifts that have happened. And, and I've seen posts that maybe multiple calls has made or other sites on on social that have kind of alluded to the fact that I don't want the surgeon that got a 70 operating on me. Probably wouldn't be a good decision. And I think we have to really put under the microscope some of the shifts and changes we're doing in our service to understand that. It does take a special individual that meets a certain criteria to perform this job at a very high level in, in, in unimaginably stressful and dangerous circumstances. And I think we, we need to do a better job at holding or maintaining or elevating standards to make sure that we're getting the best people for the job, especially when we're looking at what the longevity looks like. And, and now not just the physical injuries, like back injuries are rampant, but mental health injuries are the new back injury. And and those things are going to happen too. Overall, I mean, we're doing good things. I, I, I do believe that. We just have to really put emphasis on the things that we believe in and, and drive the change or or maintain the standards that we want to hold our people accountable. And hopefully that ripples up the uh, ranks and we can continue to move forward in a very progressive way versus finding out down the road that the pendulum's shifted too far and, and we can't build back.
0: So you feel that we're doing our best at this point to... I guess I could say pass a torch for it, but it's really more passing the nozzle forward.
1: Absolutely. Well, I think there are people that are for sure. Um, and, and and you're going to get it in every department in every profession where there's the people who pour their heart and soul in it. And there's, there's people that are punching the clock at the, at the beginning and the end of shift. But the ones who are digging in, I, I do believe they're doing great things. I see exposure of that firsthand. And there are people that are creating magic out there for sure.
0: Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up?
1: Uh, no, I think we're good. I, I, I do want to say that we're blessed to have this job and, and for anyone that's going to be pursuing it, that's maybe kind of in those ebbs and flows of applying and questioning life and courses and what do I do next, uh, stay the course. It will happen. The journey could be longer than you wanted it to be. That might be a gift in itself, but continue on the course because it is the best job in the world. Nice. Okay, great work. Thank you.